But welcome. Go ahead and grab some scripture. We're going to dive in here to book of Ruth. We're in week three in the book of Ruth. You can scan the QR code if you want to use the Bible app and see the verses on there or good old hard copy, Ruth chapter three. Here's a short recap on where we've been so far. Ruth is a story, obviously, narrative section in Scripture. And so if you haven't been with us, it's important that you kind of know a little bit of the basics of what's going on. And if you have been with us, then this will serve as some uh, review so that you're caught up on where we're going to go today. And so the characters that we've seen already are Elimelech and Naomi, husband and wife. They have two sons. There is a famine in Bethlehem where they're from. That'll come into play even more next week than being from Bethlehem. But they leave Bethlehem and go to the land of Moab because of the famine. And they're looking for food. And what they thought would probably be just a short time ended up being uh, 10 years that they were there. And so while they're there, their two sons end up marrying Moabite women, which are Ruth and Orpah. And then we start to get some dark news. If you were here for chapter one, chapter one's pretty dark. Uh, we find out that the dad, Elimelech, dies. And then shortly after, the two sons die as well. And so Malon and Kilion, the two sons, they die. And so the mother, Naomi, is left with her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And so they hear that Food is in Bethlehem again, that the famine is over. And so Naomi sets out to go back to Bethlehem. Uh, Orpah decides to stay in Moab. And Ruth, the daughter-in-law, decides to go with Naomi, joining herself to Naomi, so to speak, uh, in care and protection in relationship. And so Ruth goes likely to a land she's never been to before because the Lord has provided food there in Bethlehem. And so it's somewhat of an odd couple. You have this mother-in-law and this daughter-in-law, and here's the reality. We find out in chapter 1, Naomi specifically is bitter and empty. And even while we, while we talk about that, understanding that describes some of you here this morning. It's like we don't sweep stuff under the rug, right? We understand that some of you may be in one of those seasons where you would describe yourself as bitter and empty, whether it's to other people or just internally, or maybe that's your prayer. You are confessing that to the Lord. Uh, here's the other reality with them. They're both widows. And here's where the problem gets serious for Ruth and for Naomi. They're poor, they have no food, and they have no what Scripture calls a redeemer, being widows. They don't have a husband uh, to carry on the family name and to provide. They're in need of what Scripture would call a kinsman redeemer, a relative that could marry and carry on the family name, a husband to provide for them and protect them, which was vital in that day and age. There's lots of loss and darkness and hurt in chapter 1. Well, as the story unfolds, we begin to see glimpses of God's plan to bring good out of very bad circumstances. We begin to see glimmers of light in the darkness, and through this, we've seen so far that God is a God of hope, and God is a God of refuge. And even in this short review, maybe that's why the Lord has brought some of you here this morning to hear that, that God's a God of hope, and God is a God of refuge. So in chapter 2, Ruth meets 
Boaz, right? We saw Boaz introduced last week with Adam, and I, in, in my imagination, I kind of picture Boaz with um, likely, of course, a beard and a little bit dirty from the day's work. And as I picture him, I see things in movies, and, and so I picture him uh, standing there, a beard, kind of dirty from the day's work, with the sun setting behind him as like a John Williams composition begins to play. He's, he's the hero of the story in, in that sense. And I was just thinking, okay, if, um, and again, picturing things in movies, I was picturing, well, uh, what actors could I picture uh, playing Boaz? And so you can put the first picture up here. <laughs> picture, picture Kevin Costner as Boaz, uh, this hardworking, blue-collar guy, but yet has a kind heart. And if uh, you need to go back further, I, again, I was thinking, okay, what farmers have I seen in um, media over the past few years, and I had to go back a little farther for this for this one. Uh, this resonates a little more with me. This <laughs> this Boaz. There's no beard, but I but I just think of this hardworking, heroic kind of guy who's uh, kind-hearted. That's how I picture Boaz. Likely a rugged, hardworking, middle-aged man who's who is probably wealthy and definitely a gentleman of character. Scripture describes him as such, a gentleman of character and definitely a potential husband or redeemer for Ruth. That's how he's pictured as the potential there for a husband or redeemer for Ruth. Probably a little older than Ruth and we begin to wonder, is there some attraction here? That's where we are in the story. Is there a little bit of attraction starting to happen between Ruth and Boaz? Uh, Has Boaz even really noticed Ruth? We know he's noticed her at least a little bit because of what we see in the scriptures. But we're like, is Ruth going to make a move? Is, is he going to pursue Ruth at all? After they're finished one day, like gleaning in the fields, is, is Boaz going to go up and, and ask Ruth, hey, you want to go over to Sonic and grab some blasts, some Reese's blasts? That's the only kind of blast you should have at Sonic is a Reese's blast with extra Reese's. <laughs> but then we're left with a little bit of a downer at the end of chapter 2. As we're wondering what's going to happen between Ruth and Boaz, we read this verse, um, verse 23 in chapter 2. This is the, just the actual last line. It says, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Wow, wow, right? Nothing has happened up to this point, and she still is just living with her mother-in-law, Naomi. Well, where will things go next? And before we find out, I want to turn our attention to a question. It's an underlying question here with Ruth that we haven't really dove into yet the first couple of chapters, but it's one I want to touch on today, and it's this question. Who is Ruth? Who is Ruth? What's her identity? Who is she? Who is she becoming? Who will she be? And that's the, 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 tense, the tensity, intensity is building through here. As we wonder, I wonder who Ruth will become. She's, uh, well, here's how she stated her desire. Because in chapter one, Ruth said, this is my desire for myself. It's, it's to be identified with God and his people. If you remember right at the end of chapter one, that's her hope for her own identity is to be identified with God and his people. And of course, connected with Naomi. That was part of chapter 
1. But this is still hashing itself out with Ruth when we get to chapters 2 and 3. Because Ruth describes herself as such. She says, I'm a foreigner. She says, I'm a servant. And at this point, if we were to be able to ask Ruth, who are you? Here's likely what Ruth would say. I'm a widow. I'm a servant. I'm an outsider as a Moabite. And here's what we know from the narrative. We know that Ruth is a widow. She is impoverished without the covering and protection of a husband. She desperately needs and desires the rest and refuge of a husband, a kinsman redeemer who can marry her and provide for her and Naomi. Because remember, she's joined her life to Naomi's to look after her. But this question directed to Ruth of who are you is really first seen in chapter 2, Boaz. This is where we know that Boaz at least knows who she is and has identified her because Boaz sees Ruth out in the fields working and he, some of his workers, he says, hey, who's that woman out there? And we're not sure really if, if he was attracted by her sight, if it was just someone new in the fields and that's why he was asking, but he does notice her and he asks who Ruth is and his servants answer, well, that's the young Moabite woman. And so as we continue to consider Ruth's identity today in chapter three, maybe the same questions echoes, maybe, maybe this same question echoes out of the pages to you as well. When, when we see people asking Ruth, who are you? Maybe I can ask us, who are you? Who are you? Well, Naomi wants Ruth's identity to be found in being the wife of Boaz. That's what Naomi has identified for Ruth. She has put the pieces together and she has seen that Boaz would be a great husband. And so she has a plan to move things along in that direction. She's ready for something to happen. Enough of this waiting around for Naomi and Ruth. She's going to take some initiative here and that's where we'll pick it up here in um, chapter 3, verse one And so follow along with me in your scriptures. Um, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. A little bit of explanation here. Adam has touched on this already. Winnowing the barley uh, would be at harvest time where you would throw it up in the air and the wind uh, would help separate the chaff from the actual grain, uh, blow the chaff away, and then they'd be able to collect it. That's, that's what happens at the threshing floor. And so this is the harvesting time and they're at the threshing floor working, which we'll explain later. I never understood this uh, until really going through Ruth this time. Why do we find out later that Boaz was sleeping at the threshing floor instead of his house? Well, it's to guard the grain. Uh, It's harvest time, and so they're sleeping there with their grain so that no one comes in and steals their grain. That's why he's going to be sleeping at the threshing floor. Um, Maybe that's new to you as well, but all of a sudden those dots connected um, this week in preparation. And so here's what she tells, Naomi tells Ruth, wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak or your, your good clothes and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. 
And she replied, All that you say, I will do. Now as a father to a daughter, I'm going to tell you I'm not a fan of this plan. I just can't imagine a father, a mother, a, your, um, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law giving this kind of advice. I mean, can you imagine? Hey, hey, I've noticed that guy you're really interested in. I've got a plan. <laughs> I mean, things just aren't moving along. I've got, I've got some ideas. I can share them with you if you like. Here's what you do. I've heard this guy is camping up in the forest this weekend, <laughs> just up in Church's Park. I've done some research. They're going to be camping up there, grilling out hot dogs on the fire. Here's what you do. Go up there, but hide in the bushes. <laughs> Don't let him see you. Wear some camo. Nice camo, though. And when you go up there, I want you to have some perfume on. Take a shower. Bathe. <laughs> Smell good. Look good. And hide out and just watch because they'll all each have their own tents. And so watch what tent he goes into. And don't get the wrong tent. Be sure you watch what tent. You don't want to go to the wrong tent. Trust me. So... Wait till he finishes the hot dogs, goes into his tent, and make sure he's asleep. Wait long enough. Wait till the middle of the night. Wait till he's asleep. And then, real quietly, sneak up to his tent. Shh, unzip the tent. Unzip, unzip the tent. And go in. And then, you know that little zipper at the bottom of the sleeping bag? Un unzip it. But quietly, like shh, soft, unzip it, and then uncover his legs. <laughs> and then when he wakes up and smells your perfume, he'll tell you what he wants you to do. <laughs> I'm like, it's in the Bible, guys, it's in the Bible. And this is a great place to point out that some scripture is prescriptive and that it prescribes things we should do. And then other scriptures are descriptive. It just describes things that are happening. And with a sigh of relief, we can go, oh, descriptive, right? It's just, it's just describing. And so I'm just saying, uh, especially Timberline ladies, yeah, this is... This is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. And so, as we look at this, I just, uh, I think, you know, commentators are split on this. Was this good advice by Naomi or bad advice? Because we read the scriptures and we just think, oh, it's great advice, it's in the Bible. And we're like, I don't know, I'm not sure. But here's what I do know. God took what was maybe some bad advice and brought good from it, Right? Anybody ever gotten bad advice from a believer or someone you really trusted? Yes, yes. So it, just because this is in the Bible doesn't mean that it's great advice either. So again, commentators are split on that. But here's what we know is that this plan was contingent on the good character of Ruth and Boaz. 
Commentators will point to that. Even if it's good advice or bad advice, this plan was contingent on the good character of Ruth and Boaz, which is mentioned in the scriptures of both of them. And so let's see how this turns out. Verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. There's no evidence here that he was drunk. He's just in a good mood as someone who has a full belly after a long day's work. Uh, It says he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain, again, likely to guard it. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down at midnight. The man was startled and turned over. And behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, there's our question. Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings or your garment, depending on your translation, over your servant. For you, for you are a redeemer. So Ruth just puts it out there, right? And she goes a little off script. You know, uh, in a sense, Naomi said, hey, wait, and he'll tell you what to do. Ruth just jumps right in, maybe senses a little bit of awkward silence there when he says, who are you? She's like, maybe she didn't want Boaz to get any of the wrong ideas. She jumps right in and tells him why she's there. She's essentially proposing to Boaz. That's how Boaz would have heard it when Ruth says, spread your wings or your garment over me, your servant, for You are a redeemer. Ruth's proposal is full of meaning and depth. I wish we had more time to really dive into all these parts that she says here in her proposal, but we can stretch the surface on them for sure. She's essentially stating her desire for her identity to be wrapped up in who he is. She's saying, here's who I am. I'm Ruth, and I'm in need of your protection. I'm in need of your leadership, and I need to be redeemed through marriage to you. That's how Boaz would have heard it. Wow. Boaz would have understood the way that she worded this. He would have understood that Naomi came with the package. It was a package deal, caring for Naomi as well, her mother-in-law. And so we're left here. What will Boaz's response be? What, what, I mean, in thinking through the scenario here, what will Boaz's response be? The response could be something like, you shameful woman, you've come here in the middle of the night, you've uncovered my legs, I'm all cold now, go away, please. He could have, again, there are likely people, other people in the area from the, we know from the context, other men who had been there working, he could have lit the lanterns, drug her out in front of all the other guys and said, look at this shameful woman. She's come here to the threshing floor and come to my tent and uncovered my feet. Who knows what else was going to go on? Look at the shame. We know from Hosea and from historians that it wasn't out of the question for prostitutes to come to the threshing floor uh, because these guys had just gotten paid. They were away from their homes. And so Boaz could have shamed her in that moment as well. And remember, Boaz could have taken advantage of her physically. We're in the context of the time of the judges where immorality was rampant, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Let's see Boaz's response to this marriage proposal from Ruth. This could go really well or really bad. Verse 10, and he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. (gasps) Sigh of relief, right? 
He didn't kick me out of the tent. He, he didn't give me some kind of harsh response, even though it's the middle of the night and he's got cold legs. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. What he's saying is you, you could have, uh, some commentators say he's pointing to her youth here and said you could have had anybody. You could have had any of these young men young men that work for me. You could have had any of these, but you didn't. You were looking after Naomi because she needed a kinsman redeemer in order to redeem the family and keep the land and keep the name. Verse 11, now my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. It's the same phrase that's used in Proverbs 31 of the Proverbs 31 woman. So what a sigh of relief. Boaz says yes to Ruth's very unconventional proposal. In the following verses, there's a little bit of a snag. Boaz says that there's actually a closer man that's related that would actually have what we consider to be first right of refusal, so to speak, for Ruth's hand in marriage. And so Boaz knows this, and he wants to do this right, and so he tells her, hey, I'm going to go talk to this guy, and if he wants to take you in marriage, then let him do it, which we'll just read that um, and, and see what happens here. But Boaz says uh, this to Ruth uh, for the moment. Um, look here at verse 13. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. Commentators say that's likely an effort to protect her. Uh, she would not be at a safe place out in the middle of the night around the threshing floor, and so tells her to lie down there uh, and wait until morning. There's no evidence that anything happened inappropriate in this moment. Um, Verse 14, so she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he, Boaz, said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. He's looking out for her dignity and her, her reputation here. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, that this is Naomi, she asked Ruth, how did you fare, my daughter? And in the original language, commentators say what Naomi actually asks Ruth is, who are you? Which is interesting, because Naomi obviously knows who Ruth is. But it's, it's a hard translation into the English, and so it's translated, translated into the English, how did you fare? But the question is the same as what we've seen asked of Ruth. Who are you? And do you understand what Naomi is asking in that moment? She's asking, are you still a Moabite widow or has your identity changed? Are you still who you were or, or are you the, the future Mrs. Boaz? She's asking, who are you? Ruth is again being asked about her identity. And again, may we allow that question to sink over us. Who are you? Who are you? Let's read again. Verse 16. We'll we'll finish out 16 and then read 17. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Or who are you? And then she told her, All the man had done for her. 
saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. That's what Boaz said. Hey, don't go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law, Naomi. And this blew me away this week. In reading Ruth, I had never connected what we see here in chapter 3 to what we saw in chapter 1 of Naomi. Do you remember how Naomi was described in chapter 1? Empty and bitter, right? That's how Naomi was described in chapter 1. Empty and bitter. And I wonder, can we see the Lord turning the tables here, bringing about healing and provision, not only for Ruth, but for Naomi as well, right? Naomi said in chapter 1, don't call me Naomi, which by the way means sweet or pleasant. In chapter 1 she said, don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly bitterly with me, and I went away to Moab full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. It's just a guess, but I wonder here in chapter 3 what Naomi would say if we asked her the question, who are you? If we ask the same question of Naomi, hey, who are you? Here in chapter 3, who are you? Ruth's just come back with more food from Boaz, and Ruth is telling her of Boaz's intentions to take them both under his wing and marry Ruth. And I wonder if Naomi might have said, wow, I'm Mara bitter no more. Call me Naomi again, for the Lord is pleasant and sweet and has dealt with me pleasantly and sweetly. There's great sweetness and pleasure in him. And again, we let that question fall over us. Who are you? Well, the chapter ends in suspense. What will Boaz find out as he goes to town and and meets with this other relative that's closer than him in, in the way that the family line falls? If this other relative will take Ruth in marriage and offer protection and provision to Ruth and Naomi, or if Boaz will be the one. And the scene closes right there with Ruth waiting to see how things will turn out. That's what Naomi tells her. Hey, just wait. Boaz is going to sort this out in no time. Just wait. Will she marry a man she's likely never even met, or will it be Boaz with whom she desperately wants to be married? Her very identity hangs in the balance. Well, can I speak a bit to that question we've been asking since we started a few minutes ago? We asked, who are you? Because for anyone who's given their life to Christ and been drawn into relationship with Him, their identity is very different from someone not in relationship with God through Christ. And so the question would be, am I in Christ? And what does that tell me about my identity What do I need to be reminded of today about my identity? I think that's a sweet question to ask. Say, we've asked over and over, who are you? That's an identity question. What does the Lord have to speak into you today regarding your identity in Christ? Or, if you're not in Christ, if you've never entered into relationship with Him, maybe the question is, what are you waiting for? For Ruth... She had to wait before she would find out her identity. And that's where the scene drops, the suspense, the waiting. But for us, guess what? There doesn't have to be any waiting to be reminded of and told who our identity is in Christ. 
I'm going to read some scriptures to you. The scriptures won't be on the screen, but some of the key words will be. And maybe we let the Lord answer the question of who am I through his word. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17. And as we read through some of these scriptures, I've got several to read through here. And then the truth on the screen there of our identity. Maybe there's one of these the Lord wants to give you specifically this morning to say, wow, Lord, that one was, that one was from you for me, speaking into my identity in you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called, again, children of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Romans chapter 8, verse 37, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Ephesians 2:19 this is the last one this might be Ruth's this might have been Ruth's favorite verse if she had the new testament in her time as once a moabite outsider with a questionable identity who had been chosen and redeemed in marriage and given a new identity she would read these words so then you are no longer strangers and aliens or, or outsiders but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, part of God's family. As we've seen in the life of Ruth, our God is a God of hope, a God of refuge, a God of redemption, and a God of provision. And if you find yourself in a place of searching and grasp, grasping for any of these, any of these, when we talk about hope, refuge, redemption, and provision, if you find yourself grasping for any of these apart from Him, may you be brought home today by His Spirit. If you're already His child, may you be reminded of your new identity in Him. And if you're far from Him and have never entered into relationship with Him, may today be the day your identity changes for good from enemy to friend, from orphaned to adopted, from foreigner to citizen, 
from stranger to his child. We're going to wrap up here and move toward our time of communion and worship and song again. And maybe you take time to reflect on the truths he's revealed to you or or reminded you of this morning when it comes to your identity in him. If you're a believer in Christ, there's communion for you in the back while we sing. At any point while we're singing, you can get up and grab communion, bring that back to your chair and eat and drink in remembrance and sweet celebration of who he is and what he's done for you. Maybe you are ready to enter into a relationship with him and you've never taken that step. As I described, sometimes you're on the threshold of of stepping into a relationship with Christ. You felt his draw of you. Maybe today is your day that by grace and through faith you might be saved and from that moment on called his child that you might truly know the goodness of Christ and experience a new identity. You guys pray with me. Jesus, we thank you for your finished work on the cross and your resurrection and how that informs our new identity in you. Lord, that the old is gone and the new has come. And so, and maybe in this season or even in this week, the enemy has come against us as believers and, and told us things about our identity that just aren't true, that are lies. And I pray, Lord, that by your Spirit, as we celebrate your finished work, that you would remind us of our identity in you. That by your Spirit, we would be able to identify and reject those lies of the enemy when it comes to our identity and who we are. Lord, I thank you for the beauty we've seen in Ruth up to this point. And we've seen you shaping and molding her and changing her identity by the relationship with this kinsman redeemer. Lord, I thank you for the beautiful picture of how that points us, Jesus, to your work for us, you as our redeemer, you as our source of hope and refuge and protection and provision. I pray, Lord, we would lean into that this morning as we eat and drink together and as we sing Jesus, of your goodness. We pray these things in your name alone. Amen.